The teaching text today comes from Exodus chapter 13. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. On that day tell your son, I do, not do, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep the or- this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all can be seated. I want to talk about something very important today, and it's why all Christians should be on a gluten-free diet. Very important. What are we going to do with this scripture? Well, uh, this morning, I hope that you're coming in. Perhaps you're feeling liberated. I see that many of you felt great about being maskless. Uh, Some of you may be feeling a bit nervous with that new situation. I don't know if you're coming in and it's your first time being in a worship service for a long time, or maybe this is a new community to you, and so your blood pressure is up, or maybe you're like, finally, I'm among my people. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us. But I just want to tell you that I don't think that anybody is here by mistake. I think the Holy Spirit has been the one drawing you in toward Jesus and toward God's family, and so I just want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome and you're wanted, and it is a joy that we get to worship together. Well, since January, we've been exploring an idea that comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 6 called the ancient path. And God told the prophet Jeremiah, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. And the ancient path, of course, is not a literal road, but it's a manner of being in the world that's hungry for God's best wisdom about uh, discerning what is the way of faithfulness. It's not an implicit approval of everything that's old. Uh, All that is old is not wisdom. Nor is it an implicit rejection of everything that is new. You know that not everything that is new is progress. But it's this hunger to know, God, what is your best for us? Well, at the end of uh, this month, we're going to wrap up our study of the ancient path and transition this summer to the book of Philippians. It's a letter to a young church, not unlike us. And I've been preaching my heart out for the last 52 weeks. I think I've preached 48 uh, times out of 52, something like that. So I'm bringing in a bunch of great friends who are great preachers this summer, and I'm going to get a break, and you're going to get to hear some really good preaching. We're going to study the book of Philippians together. I hope that you'll be a part of that. So what are we doing with today's text? Well, in, in Exodus chapter 13, we find that God is delivering the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. If you've tracked in recent months, the people have been enslaved for for generations upon generations, and now all of a sudden God is saying, you're free to go. And Pharaoh had been reluctant to listen and very obstinate in heart, and God jarred him into compliance with these great acts of power against the would-be gods of the Egyptians with these ten plagues. And Israel is forced to leave Egypt so quickly they don't even have time to throw together a proper sandwich. And God does something really fascinating, although the text in reading it may not have sounded fascinating to you. He instructs the people, look, I want you to remember what this moment feels like. I want you to remember what it was like when all of a sudden Pharaoh said, go for it, run. 
He said, and the way that I want you to remember it is I want you to remember you had to leave so quickly that you didn't even have time to throw yeast into the bread and wait for it to rise and throw it in the oven. You had to eat the unleavened, unyeasted bread. And so here's how I want you to remember it in the years to come. Every year, I want you to carve out a week, and for a week, only eat bread that contains no yeast. And on the last day of that week, I want you to hold this big worship festival. But then here's the really important part of it. So he's told them what to do, but the really important part comes in verse 8. It says, having done that, on that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. God here, in instructing the people about commemorating this moment with, with the, this annual practice, follows it by telling them, tell your kid why you do it. And this insistence on explaining the why behind it is concerned with the transmission of faith from one generation to the next. From the generation who didn't know what it was like to be in the middle of slavery in Egypt and therefore didn't, couldn't fully appreciate what it was like to be delivered. Concerned about the generations who didn't see God bear his arm in power against Pharaoh, who, who see their parents' actions but don't necessarily understand by observance their intentions, the big why behind their actions. And surprisingly, the passage shows us an interesting recipe for the shareability of an ancient pathway of life from one generation to the next. And you have action plus intention. Action plus intention. Now, by action, I mean a clear, visible activity that characterizes uh, the life of one who follows in God's way. In the text, it prescribes a specific action. Every year, hold this week-long, yeast-free eating week, and then commit into the week with a night of worship, with a worship festival. And this is one of many rhythms of worship that God instructs the people of Israel to take on. But then it specifically says, you must explain to your kids why you're doing it. On that day, tell your son, we do this because of what the Lord did for us in freeing us from Egypt. Now, the explanation of the why is historical, certainly. It's like this is what happened in our life together. But it's much more than just the telling of the facts. It's much more than just the, the brief history of Israel. I think there's an emotional component to the explanation. It's like, listen, kid, son, daughter, you don't know what it felt like to be a slave because you've only grown up free. But let me tell you, it was a totally different reality. There's an emotional explanation. This is, what, this is where I was sitting when I heard the news that Pharaoh was kicking us out. There's a relational explanation, and your mom and your aunt and all those people were there. It's historical, it's emotional, it's relational, it's spiritual. The, the why represents all of the reasons behind their gratitude and indebtedness to God. And the why behind our actions makes all the difference in the world. Some of you have seen the TED Talk from Simon Sinek who said, people are attracted to why you do what you do, not just what you do. People are motivated chiefly by uh, not just what you do, but why you do it. And inspiring other people to follow in the way of Jesus requires visible action and a readiness to explain the intention or the why behind our action. And we're going to play with these two dynamics, action and intention, through one of my favorite tools on planet Earth, which is a two-by-two -two chart. 
Uh, Jaron and I have had lunch. Jaron knows that I love two-by-two charts. It is a rite of passage on our staff that at some point I'm going to sit you down with a whiteboard and I'm going to do a two-by-two chart to teach something that's really important to me. So in a two-by-two chart, you've got these two axes, the, the y-axis going up and down, the, other, the x-axis going horizontally. And we're going to talk about the dynamics between action and intention. So on the y-axis, we've got action. You're taking action. You're doing stuff. A person can be very active. Or on the other, at the bottom end, they can take no action. Everybody tracking with me so far? Am I being understandable? Nod your head. Let me know. Okay, not as certain as the last service, okay? Uh, on the other axis, we've got intention. You have a clear why. You can have a clear why, or you can have an ambiguous why, or you don't have a clear motivation or intentions behind your action. Now, I'm going to present this in, a, in an extreme way, the most extreme cases, but no, there's a scale. You can be somewhat active, you can have like somewhat of your heart end of it, somewhat of a motivation, or you can have no heart, no action, okay? So I'm going to present in extremes with some strong language. Not four-letter words, but still strong. So, okay, how would we characterize the faith experience of a person who has clear, visible action, like in response to God's work in their life, they're taking action, and they also have a very clear sense of why or intention behind it? How would we describe or characterize the faith experience of that kind of person? Well, you might say that their faith is alive. There's a vibrancy to it. There's something attractive about it. Their beliefs are prompting them to do stuff, and they're both ready to explain the why behind their actions, and they proactively tell those closest to them why they do what they do. In the text, we're told about uh, parents and children. So a couple of great examples of this. You're talking to your kid, you're talking to someone important to you, and you ask them or they ask you, why do you go to church services every Sunday? Well, we believe Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday. That's the most important thing that's ever happened in human history, and we need to remember that so we go to church every week. We go to services every week. Or you could ask your kid, do you know why we pick up trash when we're walking around and we just see litter scattered about? Well, we believe the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And so if the earth belongs to God, we want to take care of the stuff that belongs to God. Uh, why do we spend so much time with other Christians? Well, it's because we believe the church is our first family. And we really want to be close to our family. We need the encouragement that our family brings. And we need to encourage other people. And so we really prioritize spending time with other Christians. Uh, why do we try so hard to get to know our neighbors and take care of them? Well, Jesus said the second most important thing in the world to do is to love your neighbors like you love yourself. Do you know why we pray for people who are mean to us? Well, it's because God prays for us when we're mean to him. Jesus died on the cross for his enemies, and he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you know why we give away some of our money every month? Well, we believe that God is our provider, and therefore we've got plenty. And so God is the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth, and so like, we give away to honor God because he's given so generously to us. Do you know why we're so careful not to watch screens, to look at screens too much, and we're careful about what we watch? Well, Proverbs 23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so we're careful about what comes into our heart, through our eyes and our ears, because we want to be careful about what comes out of us. Uh, why is it so hard for mom and dad to figure out who to vote for? Well, it's because we're citizens of the kingdom of God and neither the Republicans or the Democrats fit perfectly with that, so we're misfits everywhere we go. 
clear action and a clear why that you can explain is a recipe for a certain vibrancy of faith. And it increases the likelihood that that faith can be shared with other people, though it certainly doesn't guarantee it. You take clear action, have a clear intention, you might be able to characterize that person's faith experience as being alive. Okay, well, let's go to the bottom right here. A person uh, has a sense of why, there's a sense of motivation, but not enough to get them to do anything, okay? Uh, How do we characterize that person? How about disobedient? (laughs) Judgmental much, John? First service liked that line. (laughs) I I would guess that people don't jump into this quadrant with a lot of excitement. Uh, you're more likely to drift into this quadrant. You know, faith might have mattered to a person in this quadrant at one point. You know, these people may have a, a favorite Bible verse in their social media profile. They may say, faith is really important to who I am. Uh, but faith isn't making a visible difference in their lives or prompting actions that other people could observe that would differentiate them from anybody else. So they may attend church a few times a year, especially at key times, but they don't give, they don't pray, they don't serve the poor, they're mean to folks, they aren't deliberately living in Christian community. They pretty much do what they want in life. To use the most cliche church language there is, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. You haven't heard that since 1994, but you heard it here. The person here needs to take to heart James 1.22. Don't merely be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Or they need to do what John the Baptist said to do. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you're doing the actions. You're saying you repent, but let your life show evidence of it. Well, how do we characterize a person in this lower left quadrant where they're not taking any action and also they don't have any faith motivation? There's nothing going on in their hearts with respect to their faith. Well, you could say that their faith is dead. Now, that's not a judgmental statement. That's not being uh, mean. It's, it's kind of a matter of facts. And actually, there's a kind of integrity to this person who, not professing to have any faith, doesn't try to act according to it. You can kind of appreciate that in an interesting way. Interestingly, this is where all of us start out. Remember Ephesians 2? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. What changes the situation for a person like that? Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. And finally, how would we characterize the faith experience of someone who has a lot of visible religious action, but their intentions are unclear, or they don't have their heart in it? Can you guess? No, you can't guess, because the answer is zombie. (laughs) A zombie has has an appearance of life. There's religious activity that's happening, but on the inside, they are dead. People who are externally religious but don't have a heart that's motivated by love for Jesus can be some of the meanest people on planet Earth. Jesus confronted a group of people like this in Matthew chapter 23. He said, Woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. But but they're not always mean. They're not always a child of hell. They may just be completely bored and uninspired in their faith. 
They've managed for some reason of obligation, maybe it's trying to please mom or dad or grandma, to keep up with the appearances of the Christian faith, but they genuinely have no personal reason compelling them to do it. And these are people who need to rediscover the heart of the gospel. So on the top right, we've got people who take action and have a clear heart and motivation behind it. Their faith has a vibrancy to it. They're alive. The bottom right, we have those who have a kind of motivation, but it doesn't get them to do any action. They're not different than anyone else. They're, they're disobedience. Those who take no action and have no religious compulsion, they're dead in their faith. And then finally, we've got the zombies bringing up the rear who have religious activity, but no heart behind it. So if there's a shareability to the vibrant, like the, the vibrant faith of a person at the top right, what about the other quadrants, especially the bottom right and the top left? How would we characterize the shareability of the faith of those I've characterized as being disobedient? Well, I think what we saw in ages past is that many of the children of these kind of folks would end up like their parents, maintaining only the most superficial artifice of religious loyalties, but having limited or little effect on the way that they live their lives, just like their parents. But what we're seeing in increasing measure now is that the kids of those who are only superficially Christian as they come of age are moving toward being post-Christian. They've said it's no longer important to try to keep up the act. Mom and dad weren't really in it, so why would I play along? I can go play golf or sleep in on Sundays. They move toward post-Christianity. In the past, when it was you know, popular or socially advantageous to be a Christian, they probably would have kept up appearances. But today, when it's less popular, when it might be more socially costly to be a Christian, may create some social awkwardness to profess to be a Christian, many of these kids decide that they're just going to walk away from the faith. Okay, a, a satirical article, the headline is, After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of faith. Local father, receive this in a playful spirit, okay? No judgment here, playfully. Local father, Trevor Michelson, 48, and his wife, Carrie, 45, are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter to church every Sunday, they didn't have a more pressing sports commitment, which was at least once every three months. She no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith that they raised her with. Now that she's college-aged, Trevor Michelson was simply stunned at the revelation. I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there was a rained-out game or a break between school and club team seasons, we had Janie in church. It was at least once per quarter. And aside from the one tournament in 2011, we never missed an Easter Sunday. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. I, can t I can't tell you how many times we prayed the prayer of Jabez on the way to a game. Does, some of you still remember that reference. Okay. You know, the more I think of it, the more this illustrates how the church just keeps failing this generation, lamented Trevor, citing a recently Googled study by Barna or somebody else. The Michelsons further noted that uh, they, they had plans to have a chat with the pastor of their church after their, Robert, their younger son, Robert's soccer season, calms down a little bit. Man, you guys are <laughs> lower, <laughs> lower left quadrant. These jokes are great. <laughs> the shareability of those who are in the bottom right is, is limited. Like if my parents aren't even, didn't have their heart in it, why would I? 
to move toward post-Christianity. What about at the top left? Well, a similar thing, but at a different speed. Uh, the kids, seeing that the, the gospel has not won the heart of their parents, often sprint toward post-Christianity. Especially when they, they sin, if there's a mean spirit or a judgmentalism to their experience of Christianity. Uh, a term popped up on Twitter in 2016, and it was exvangelical. It was people who just exhausted by uh, some of the unfaithfulness of the evangelical church said, I am just out. And if you don't know, there seems to be a tidal wave of kids of Christian parents rushing toward post-Christianity. Sometimes it's not the parents' fault. They're overwhelming forces at the church at large that you can attribute it to. But largely, they're coming from these situations where they've seen their parents or influential people profess Christianity, but their engagement in the world was so unchristian and unchristlike that they decided they didn't want any part of it. And while their exodus from the church is definitely something to be lamented and, and we should strive you know, to rectify, we should, be, we should equally lament and strive to rectify the failure of discipleship in the previous generations that created the conditions for their exodus. Now this is not all bad news. In fact, actually, I think there's really, really good news and a lot of hope embedded in this conversation because as we increasingly see what is wrong, ways in which the church has been unfaithful, there's an opportunity through the Holy Spirit and working in community for God to help us get things right. I'm moved and challenged by the quote from A.J. Sherrill. He said, if we just get back to taking Jesus seriously, we might be spared more articles about why millennials and Gen Z are leaving the church. Painting with a really broad brush, I think we can say the chief sins of those on the lower right are leisure and pleasure. And the chief sins of those on the top left are politics and legalism. And the consequence of those sins is a faith that's simply not compelling to the next generation and not shareable with much of anyone else. But again, there's good news. It was Dallas Willard who said, There is no problem in the church today that genuine apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. He also said, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or by culture are identified as Christian will become disciples. He said the most important thing, the most pressing issue in all the world is that those who bear the title Christian will actually also be disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And for those with ears to hear, I think all of this invites some personal reflection. I've painted things with a broad brush here, but you might say, where am I in terms of like my faith motivating my activity, my actions in the world? We're not talking about being like legalistic or, or don't beat yourself up over this, but hear this with the spirit of Christ, the gentleness of Christ inviting you to be well. Are you, when you take a given action, you reflect on a job as you engage in what, like just being a person, to what degree does your faith motivate your action? Does it prompt you to do stuff in, in response to what God has done in your life? And similarly, in the other way, like, does God have your heart? 
is the meaning that you encode into what you do, like love for God, appreciation, and gratitude for what he's done for you. Could you explain why you do what you do? In thinking about our actions, we could ask ourselves, am I learning to obey the teachings of Jesus in my everyday life? Are you living in such a way that someone else might be curious about your motivation and ask you why you do what you do, but in a good way, not for being a jerk? Have there been any specific promptings that you've, from the Holy Spirit that you've ignored or neglected? Are there any of, of, of the basics that you're deliberately saying no to? I think that the response in these kind of situations, when we find we've erred and we're in the wrong, is to seek to rectify it. But the Bible word for this is to repent, to change your mind, but it's also to change your actions. Now, don't, don't, hear your, don't hear me beating you up. Take it in the spirit of the prodigal son. Jesus told a story to illustrate what his father was like when the son started making his way home after wild living and practices, practicing his I'm sorry speech. The father sees him, sprints to him, and hugs him and holds him in his arms before he can ever say I'm sorry. And with the similar spirit, the, the gospel invites joyful repentance. There's no shame or browbeating. There's an invitation to learn to be well. How is the gospel inviting you to take action? And then similarly to reflect, could you give a compelling explanation for why you do what you do? Not just because the Bible tells me so, not just a historical or theological or biblical argument, though I hope you know the Bible, I hope you know theology, I hope you know church history, but can you tell somebody else what God has done in your life? Or quite simply, is your heart alive with love for Jesus? When was the last time that the gospel moved you, even moved you to tears? Are you increasingly growing in love, learning to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, like we prayed over Madeline, learning to love your neighbor as yourself? And if that's you, you're you're far over to the left, and you've lost the heart. The prayer is just, Lord, would you tenderize me? Would you stir my heart again with the beauty of the gospel? Would you deliver me from religious monotony and legalistic do-goodery and just fill my heart with fresh love for you? And in reflecting on all of this, it may be helpful to think about where we all started, our common story. Go back to Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed uh, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us at one time lived among them, uh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works lest any should boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
What's the intention, the why behind everything we do as followers of Jesus? It's his great love for us. It's in his love he loved us back to life. He resurrected us. We love him because he first loved us. It doesn't start with a brow-beaten decision to follow the rules. No, it's because we've been loved and welcomed back into the family. And having been loved and restored back into the family and given a restored sense of self, we're given a restored purpose. We find this is how our family behaves and we discover, oh my gosh, he prepared stuff for us to do. Motivated by love, we have a clear sense of action and opportunity in the world and we get to partner with other people in doing it, joining God in the renewal of all things. There's action and there's intention, and we err when we pick or we neglect them both. Motivated by love, we take on the fruits of the Spirit. We join in the Great Commission. We strive to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And with God's help, we learn to love our neighbors and even our enemies. Action and intention together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, you would forgive us for ways in which we've just de- deliberately neglected um, your instructions to us. Now, some of us have just been exhausted and worn out by life, and so things that really genuinely are important to us have just gotten pushed aside amid the noise and the stress and the anxiety of, of work and COVID and politics and family and friendships and everything feels like it's on the frets. Would you just lovingly invite us back to the home of the Father? Would you help us, give us the grace to repent and and to get to work in ways that you're inviting us to partner with you? May, May your invitation be one not of shame, but of an eagerness and a joyful desire to be aligned with your purposes. Would you forgiving us for having, forgive us for having hard hearts, for being mean spirited toward people? Would you tenderize us and to have fresh love in our hearts for you and for other people? May the the oxygen, the air that we breathe in the environment of the kingdom be love. True love is defined and seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us while we were yet his enemies. And even now, Lord Jesus, as we come to receive communion, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here. On these gifts of bread and wine, would you make them be for us so much more than that, but a means by which we experience the power of the risen and resurrected Christ, Christ ascended, pulling for us at the right hand of the Father. Help us to experience this life in our community together, evidenced by uh, alternate ways of living, Sermon on the Mount ways of living, and also by tender hearts that love God, that love our neighbor, and even love the people that we hate. Jesus, we we love you and we honor you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Everybody said, Amen. amen.